Galatians chapter 4. I want to <clears throat> I want to cover off on Galatians 4 from the night of our concert. Uh, my mind just <clears throat> started thinking about this passage and was a little bit convicted about a topic that I haven't really addressed a lot in our church family, and that is the uh, topic of adoption. And this morning, I want you to see the connection between the topic of adoption in Christianity and the incarnation and coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where I want to turn our attention this morning. So let's read Galatians 4, verses 1 through 6 together. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, that is, in some future point, it will become his. But while he or she is a child, they do not experience the benefit of ownership. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. And the idea of basic principles of the world, let me just say this, is living under rules and regulations as the means of achieving favor with God. Okay, that's what the rudimentary elements are about. Okay, so when you read that phrase, Paul, in the context of Galatians, is talking about the means by which people sought to gain approval from and with God. Law-keeping. Okay, the, the better I do, the more God likes me. If I have a good day, God's more inclined to hear me when I lay down my head on the pillow at night and pray at the end of the day. If I've done well, he's more inclined to hear me. That's legalism. It assumes that my access to God and my enjoyment of his fatherly paternal favor is a result of my good behavior. It is deadly to your understanding of the gospel to think in those terms. And so Paul has put a bullseye on the issue of legalism this idea of gaining favor by performance, he's seeking to destroy it, and he wants the church to understand, you are sons and daughters of God. How dare you slip back into a performance mindset that says, I have my relationship as long as I maintain my relationship with God. No, you have the relationship because of what somebody else did. You have the relationship completely apart from your performance. And that Having of that relationship apart from our performance is not because no one performed. It's because someone did come and performed perfectly all of my obligations. So that I end up with the result of this relationship with God. I am a son or you are a daughter of God's by grace through faith alone. You have made no contribution to that relationship but to that arrangement. It is fully and completely of God. And Paul's concern is to press that truth home through this passage of scripture verse 4 he says but when the time had fully come god sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem them under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons because you are sons god has sent the spirit of his son into your heart the spirit who calls out abba father father as we turn to your word this morning would you fill our hearts with a unique joy this morning, that we would realize that every individual in this room who has been drawn to place faith in Christ by the Spirit is adopted into your family and has an irrevocable relationship with you based upon grace, not performance, hence irrevocable. 
And may we settle our hearts in this relationship and realize that it is the goal, it is the intended consequence of the Christmas season that rebels would become sons and daughters of God. And Lord, as Paul says, this is what we are. Sons and daughters rescued from their rebellion. Lord, we thank you for that truth. And may that truth so settle into our hearts that this next week where we enjoy so much that we would delight in even more our Savior Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to gain this focus, I pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Okay. Two time frames are covered in this passage of Scripture. Verses 1 through 3 talks about the time period prior to the coming of the Savior. Verses 4 through 6 talk about the coming of the Savior and the outworking of the intended consequence of the incarnation or the advent and coming of Christ. So, if you look in two directions, you have time prior to Christ, Israel under the law. People trying to keep the law, going to temple in order to maintain a relationship with God. And then at the advent of Christ, we find a change. A change that comes, let me just describe this real briefly. A change that comes when the time had fully come, beginning of verse 4. At the time that God sovereignly chose, he sent his son. Now that is, if you want the gospel in a nutshell, it is this. God sent his son. And that truth, that phrase, is what sets biblical Christianity apart from every world religion. Here's my conviction. If biblical Christianity is true, it must in some way be distinct from every other world religion. Now, I could list for you five or six, just to work these out in my mind over the years, five or six similarities between biblical Christianity and every other world religion. Okay, there is one thing that sets biblical Christianity apart. And that is this phrase. God sent his son to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So that the essence of biblical Christianity focuses on what God has done. It is God reaching out to us. It's not us sending gifts to God to appease his wrath and to earn his favor. I've been in Indonesia. I've been in India. I've been in Colombia. And I've seen this in Christianity with the small C churches where offerings are given to appease God, to reach out to God. It's why I'm not a Roman Catholic. Roman Catholicism assumes that based on what I do, I am earning points and merit with God. In Hinduism, offerings are made to the gods to appease the wrath of the God so that you have favor with him. You're reaching out to him. In Buddhism, offerings are placed before the uh, idols to bring appeasement and satisfaction. Follow it out through all world religions. It is always about humanity reaching out to God. In biblical Christianity, the paradigm shifts into a complete reversal. God reaches out to us. God sent his son. Okay, that is what sets the belief of biblical Christians apart from all other world religions. And I, this, my conviction is, if biblical Christianity is true, there are going to be things about it that are utterly and completely distinct because truth will always stand out in contrast to error. The resurrection of Christ is another truth. No other world religion has ever even dreamt of its leader claiming, kill me and I will rise from the dead. No worldly religion, not one. Biblical Christianity makes these claims. God became flesh, God died, and God rose again on the third day. And it is that truth that 
distinguishes biblical truth from all of the world religions. So when the time had fully come, many have made these observations. At the time when the <coughs> Greek language was the commercial language of the world so that the gospel, as you know, the New Testament is written in Greek. At that time, when there was a world commercial, did I say religion? I meant to say language. Okay. When there was a world commercial language that was understood across the globe, at that time, God sent a son. Another thing that was occurring, the Roman Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, the power of Rome that covered the earth at that time, provided a, a degree of relative peace globally that people could travel between countries, much like we have today in many parts of the world. Third factor that probably weighs into the at the right time was that the gospel was carried forth on the feet of apostles on roads that Roman soldiers had built in order to integrate their kingdom. They had set up in what in the first century would have been the equivalent of an interstate system so that travel, getting to cities, could occur. At that time, when the gospel was best suited through peace, through language, and through a communication system, God sent his son. I think that is a beautiful, beautiful observation from history. God sent his son. It is the divine intention of God to bring his son, Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh, to earth. He became a man. That's what's captured in the phrase when it says he was born of a woman, pointing to the humanity of Christ, which refers to, if you go back to Romans chapter 5, the, the humanity of Christ refers to his representative role. Okay, his representative role. He came to represent Tim Hoff as a sinner on Calvary's cross. To do that, he had to become like me in terms of my humanity, to be an equivalent, acceptable sacrifice. Read through Romans 5, you'll find that truth explained very, very clearly. So he becomes a man, then he does this. He lived a perfect life. My observation is this. He was born under the law. The way that First Peter 2, in the words of Peter the Apostle, puts it is this. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He, listen to this, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. As Peter reflected on the person of Christ, this is his fundamental observation. He committed no sin. He was so different. You can just hear this in, Paul, in Peter's words. He was so different than me. I mean, Peter knew what it was to get his foot in his mouth from every direction possible. He watched him be tempted in every way, Hebrews 4.15, like we are, yet without sin. And the way that Peter describes the sinless Son of God is to say, we watched him. John will say, we, what we beheld is glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14, God became flesh and lived amongst us. And Peter's conclusion in reference to the life of Christ, he committed no sin. And yet was put on the cross as a rebel in the place of rebels. Because that was the intended consequence of his becoming flesh. In that flesh, he lived a perfect life. And at the end of his life, he became a curse for us. Here's the way Galatians 4.4 4 says it. He came to redeem them that were under the law. To pay the price that I could not pay, but I had to pay. To pay the price that would condemn me to eternal separation from my heavenly father forever apart from the death of his son. And as you, as you look through that verse, just, just capture the, the full glory and heart of the Christmas season that is there. 
He became a curse. If you turn back to Galatians 3.13, it says, He became a curse for us. And He came willingly for that purpose. Hebrews 10 verse 7 quotes from the book of Psalms. He says, the son says to the father, in the book of the law it is written, I have come to do your will. It echoes then forward in the gospels, doesn't it? As Christ wrestles with the possibility of the agony of the cross. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my desire, but yours. You start to see this tie in Old Testament, Psalm 47. Move forward to the garden. Move forward to Galatians 4. It just captures this picture. He came to redeem us from our sin. And 1 John 4, 10, and then captures it in this way. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-removing sacrifice. That's what it means when it says to redeem those that were under the law. To bear the wrath, the wrath that rebels deserve to bear. He stands in as a substitute and takes the hit and hits that we as humanity deserve. And my argument to you from that brief summary as an introduction is this. Okay, those truths are what set biblical Christianity apart from every other religion. It is not helpful to debate with people of other religious persuasions all the tenets of their faith. If you want to scatter the darkness, shine the light of truth. And this, if you memorize this verse, you will know the gospel. And you can take it to the first phrase, just get the... You can, so I can't memorize verses. You can remember this. God sent his son. And I think you can remember the rest if you try. God sent his son. That is... The gospel, the intended purpose is twofold. And what I want to look at this morning in your notes is this. What are the intended consequences of the advent of the coming of Christ? Of the, at the right time, God sent his son. What was the intended consequence that father is aiming at when he sends his son from glory into a manger through a virgin birth in a place called Bethlehem with a peasant girl? And a man who's trying to figure out, how did this happen? How did this happen? Verse 5 of Galatians 4, I think, tells us exactly why Christ came. It says he came to redeem those who are under the law. And if you go back into verse... Oh, I think, actually, I'm sorry. If you go ahead in Galatians 3, you're going to find that this... Freedom is from a picture of slavery. He comes to buy out of slavery those that are under the law. But here are the intended consequences of the purchase. Okay, and this is what I want you to focus on twofold. The first one is this. He does it so that rebels can receive the full right of sons. And then I have a second blank under that that has the word, you can write this in, adoption. Okay, the intended consequence of the coming of Christ and his death is so that rebels, which all of us are, can become adopted into God's family. A key word that emerges in verse 5 is this. He does it to redeem those under the law that we might, and what's the next word say? That we might receive the full right of sons. Not so that we can purchase it or earn it by religious activity. He does it for people who go like this, say, God, I have empty hands. I am in need of your saving grace. I am a rebel who has denied your authority in my life. And what I extend before you as a result of my sinfulness is empty, filthy 
dirty hands. But God sends his son so that someone like Ryan Duvenak or Tim Hoff or Bonnie Allager can receive adoption. That's the intended purpose. Who are we? We have one thing in common. I was talking about this, I think, with Steve Adams uh, yesterday in the morning. What we have in common is this. We're rebels. Start talking to people. Start talking to people that get irritated about the world they live in, about corporate executives who, 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 are, who have power and money and how absolutely filthy they are. People want to get on that. You know, what's the common denominator between them and me? The common denominator is that we're fallen rebels. That if we have a chance to get ahead at the expense of others, we have a tendency to take it. That's what humanity does. You can go to poor countries in the world and find rebels. You can go, come to rich countries like America and find rich rebels. Guess what they both are? They're people for whom Christ died. They're just part of fallen humanity that is in need of the grace of God. Until you see yourself a rebel, until you're willing to acknowledge God, I am a rebel by nature. There is no grace and salvation and hope for you. But God bless the day when he lets us see us, lets us see us our, ourselves for what we really are. So the key is here, it is not earned, and I make no contribution to this new status that in verse 5 he calls the full right of sons. In the King James Version, in the New American Standard, what word do you have? Okay, you have the word adoption, right? And in the newer translations, it talks about the idea of the full right of sons, which tell, helps you to begin to understand what adoption was in the Roman world. Okay, when Paul says we receive adoption, the full right of sons, what is his frame of reference here? When rebels receive the full right of sons, what is it? Here's what it is. It begins with an irrevocable transaction and relationship. Okay, that's what adoption begins with. The start of a relationship that under Roman law was irrevocable. Secondly, it was a benefit bestowed on a child. And the purpose of the benefit was to guarantee and secure that the wealth of the father and mother would pass on to the heir. That was the legal purpose of adoption in the Roman Empire. It was to guarantee that that child, at the time of the death of the parents, would experience the full wealth and benefit of everything that the parent has. Now think about that if you say that my father is God. <laughs> he owns everything and through my adoption that i made no contribution to here's the way here's the way roman says it we become joint heirs with christ okay that is a staggering statement we become joint heirs with christ now, you may not like this, but I'm going to say this. It got one guy into trouble about 20 years ago. He wrote an article on adoption. And after that, most theologians just stopped writing on the topic for a while because they get nervous. What does it mean that we have full rights as sons of God and are joint heirs with Christ? What does that mean? Anybody brave enough to say it out loud? Okay, sons and daughters of God, but what does that mean? If we're joint heirs with Christ, what does that mean? Okay, we're brothers with Christ, sisters with Christ. Okay, but is that all it's saying? No, we're not. We don't become God because we don't change, but 
What does it mean to be heirs with Christ? Yeah. That, that will cause you to sit in your chair and hold your head for a little while and say, I hope I have this right. But that's the way the blessings of Christianity should leave us all the time. We, we shouldn't be able to read the glory of what Christ accomplished through his advent and say, okay, yeah, I understand that. I, I, I'm okay with that. No, no. You are joint heirs with Christ. And enjoy the full blessings that Christ enjoys by virtue of his performance. And that should leave us stunned. That should cause us to sing with amazement and deep passion. It was a benefit bestowed that guaranteed future blessings. It, it was a love of choice on the part of a father. That's the third truth. It was a love of choice. What the person, the individual, the child was going to receive had nothing to do with their birth, with their lineage, with their heritage. What they were going to receive was fully the result of the choice of a father. I read for you Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5. For he, Father, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be, what's the word? To be adopted. Okay, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And listen to this. In accordance with his pleasure and will. That should also cause you to hold your head. When you read this in the message, here's the way they say it. He did this, this adoption as sons, predetermined plan of God for humanity. And here's the way the message says it. And this brought him great pleasure. Folks, think about that. Your salvation through the death of his son brings the father pleasure. We sing the song. And at the end of it, it says this, bring many sons to glory. Do you, do you understand why in the Gospels, Jesus says there is joy in the presence of the angels in heaven over what? One. One rebel repenting of their sin and being born again by the power of God and by the choice of God causes heaven to explode with pleasure. Think about that. Let, let that settle in. When you trusted Christ, heaven threw a party. Why? Oh, because the good son came home. No. That's not the story of the prodigal son. The story is that the rebel came home. And the religious son was disgusted because he believed... Is that my phone? That was my phone. You sending me text, Kathy? Sorry about that. Okay. The rebel comes home. Who is, who's upset by that kind of grace? You know who's upset by that kind of grace? Religious people can't stand the gospel of grace. Do you understand why when we go into India, why when we go into China and proclaim a gospel of freedom, a gospel that causes heaven to celebrate the salvation of rebels? Do you understand why people are so offended by that? Because what you're saying is their performance doesn't matter. Their good works, their good attempts don't matter. That all you need is Christ. Phil Yancey calls it this. He calls that irritating grace. You want to irritate a religious person? Tell them that they're going to church means nothing to God. 
Tell them that their relative who goes to church seven days a week in the morning is not in better position before God than a prisoner sitting at Warren County Correctional Facility. That'll tick people off. That got Christ killed. You understand? That we receive the full right as sons. Who are we? We're rebels, but we are deeply blessed. And why is there such little emphasis on this truth? Here's why. We live in a world that likes to say something like this. It likes to say, well, we're all children of God. You ever hear that? I hate going to funerals for that reason. Well, we're all children of God. Right? That is like, if there's a lie that Satan wants people to believe, that is the lie. That doing nothing and having God do nothing for you, we are all children of God. To that, I simply respond, John chapter 3 and verse 36. He who believes in the Son, Galatians 4, 4 describes him, has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life. Now listen to this. But the wrath of God abides, King James, or remains, New International Version, on him. Now folks, here's what that means. That means that biblical Christianity is by definition exclusive. Okay? It is exclusive. Everybody on planet Earth is not a child or daughter of God's. That is a difficult truth for me personally. But I believe it. It's what God's Word teaches. But biblical Christianity also, in contrast to many world religions, is dramatically and amazingly inclusive. Why? Because Romans 10, 13 says what? Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved without exception. Okay, so if you are a biblical Christian, what are you part of? You are part of the most inclusive, exclusive religion, if you want to use that term, which I despise. You are part of the most inclusive, exclusive belief on planet Earth. Because what biblical Christianity believes is, apart from Galatians 4.4, we are damned. That's what it teaches. But the glorious truth that it presses us towards is that God loved us so much that he reached down to us and adopted us and changed our status and changed our name. Sons of God, daughters of God. What have we done? Sinned. We sinned. That's all we did. And we have this new privilege. So the little emphasis is the fear of confusion about this form of universalism that is very present in the world that we live in because we live in a world that's incredibly tolerant that's pluralistic we want to say that everybody's path is equally valid you can't do that and look at the word of god and agree with what it says in galatians 4 4 you can't biblical christianity draws a line in the sand i don't draw the line biblical christianity does and i think another thing that happens is we tend to confuse the doctrine of adoption with two words the word justification and the word regeneration adoption and justification and regeneration are not the same thing they're not the same justification is my status before god when i am declared righteous based on the blood of christ being applied and cleansing me from sin i have a new status i am justified god sees me in his son the new relationship that i have 
is adoption. Okay, regeneration is when God takes out the heart of stone and gives me a heart that is suddenly sensitive to sin. Every new Christian knows this experience. I trusted Christ and all of a sudden, I don't know if I should do that anymore. Did anybody tell you that? No. Well, the Spirit of God is inside doing what? He's teaching you the difference between right and wrong. He's turbocharging your conscience that you already had and probably ignored. And he's opening your eyes to the life of holiness that pleases God. Evidence of conversion. But that regeneration, that change of heart, is different than this sonship and daughtership that you've received from God. Okay, and here's what happens. God uses enormous words that usually end in I-O-N to describe your relationship with God. Words like sanctification and justification and glorification and salvation, right? Those are words that he uses. And what do they do? They help me to begin to understand and adoption They help me to understand the manifold nature of the gospel of grace. This is something that has been stunning me for the last five to seven years. How can you be in Christ since your first profession of faith for me 43 years ago and still be learning about the glory of the gospel? That delights my heart. That causes me to look forward and say, God, there are still things that I'm going to begin to learn, ramifications, as I begin to understand all of the words that define what it is to be born again, saved by grace. My appreciation of this manifold gift of God that he has lavished on us in Christ his son, that learning process will last for the rest of our lives. And to me, that is is downright exciting when we begin to think about that. Adoption focuses on our relationship with God. Not our standing with God, but our relationship with God. 1 John 3, 1. See how great of love the Father has bestowed upon us. What is John saying? John's saying, listen, listen. Look at how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. We are called children of God. Do you understand? John's not just given a, a, a simple narrative. No, John's saying, behold. You know what behold means? It it, it means to do what a girl does when she receives her diamond ring. I was going to say at the time of adoption, but at the time of engagement. Okay, you know what she does? She gazes. And if she doesn't gaze, somebody's going to be really hurt and frustrated. Okay, and everybody, can I see your ring? They don't mean, can I quick take a glance at it? They mean, I want to gaze at that. And look at that. And enjoy that. John's saying, behold what kind of love God has given to you friends listen to this behold what kind of love the father has given to us we are called children of god and folks that is not a status that every person on planet earth enjoys that is the unique blessing and benefit of born again believers and that position is purely and completely a result of grace that is described in a manifold number of different terms to show the glory of god's work in our lives second thought this morning is this And it's the second result of our adoption. Or I'm sorry, of the coming of Christ. Those who are adopted receive evidences of sonship. I'm implying in their daughtership also, but I don't think daughtership is a word. Okay, those who are adopted receive evidences of sonship. Here's the question. What are those evidences that affirm and confirm for us over and over before God, you are my son, you are my daughter. That should be the experience of every born-again believer. The voice of God affirming, you are mine. 
Same thing that every, Lord willing, every parent in this room does with their kids, no matter how old they are. You just keep telling them, I love you. I love you. That's what Father is doing in this text. He's just pouring out his love that you through my son would receive adoption. You are my sons. You are my daughters. And when you are born from above, you receive evidences of that new relationship. Look again back in verse 6 of Galatians 4. Verse 5, that we might receive the full right or adoption as sons. And then he picks up now, because we are sons. Okay, now what, what is he doing? Paul's just saying, well, there's more. There is more. Because you are sons, God in heaven has sent the spirit of his Son. Okay, now what's the word that comes to mind when you read those three words together? All right, the doctrine of the Trinity emerges from this passage of Scripture. God, in all of His glory, is working on behalf of humanity to give us a vision of what it means to be sons and daughters of God. Because this is the glorious truth that will radically transform your relationship with God and kill a religious spirit in your life. These are the assurances that God gives to everyone who experiences the intended consequence of the coming of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. These are the evidences of that relationship. John 14, verse 16. Let me just read this for you. John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him. That's the exclusion because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him for he lives in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You know what that is? That is the statement of Christ prior to his departure to Calvary's cross to be the ransom for many that will cause the disciples to become sons of God who then are filled with his personal glorious presence. And that personal presence will be the internal evidence of their conversion. So, then, the question for us when we're talking to someone about their faith in Christ should not be, when did you trust Christ? The question from a biblical perspective, you'll never find that question in Scripture. The question from a biblical perspective is this. When did you begin to experience evidence of the Spirit's assurance in your life. Not when did you pray. Not a biblical question. The biblical question is, when did you begin to experience these evidences that are listed in these passages that assure us of our adoption with God? Because you are sons, He has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts Who is it? It is the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Okay, what is the Spirit doing? He's inside of you saying, you're a son of God. Cry out to God, Abba, Daddy, Papa, Father. Is it any wonder that when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said, hey, when you pray, say this, our Father. You know, you know what he wanted the disciples to know? They were not orphans And when he left, they would not be orphans. Why? Because the Spirit of God would be internally assuring them of their relationship with the Father. 
So the question for a Christian can't be, when did I pray? The question should be, when did I begin to experience affirmations of Father's love in my heart, the Spirit crying out? That is the test of true conversion, not did I say certain words at a certain time somewhere in my history. These are the evidences of our Father's affection for us. And to look at them, I need you to turn back to Romans chapter 8, verse, verse 12. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. You just turn back there real quickly. We'll look at three simple evidences of adoption that should be present in the life of every believer to one degree or another in their Christian experience. Romans 8 and verse 12. Paul says, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. All right, what's that saying? Those that have received the spirit of adoption have been given power to live a righteous and holy life so that a truly born from above, spirit and dwelt believer can experience victory over sin in their life. Okay, and there is a lie out there that says that's not possible. Wrestle with this text. The Spirit comes so that we are not captive to the sinful nature. Does that sound anything like Galatians 4, 1 to 3? When you were captive to the rudimentary issues of the law. You're set free from that. You don't have to sin if you know Christ. If you walk in the power of the Spirit. Verse 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature according to your flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. These are the ones who have experienced adoption. Their life has changed. The trajectory of their life has changed. Their desires are changing. And sin is being killed, and righteousness is rising in their life. Three evidences of sonship. One is this. We will resist and fight sin by the Spirit. Okay, Romans 8, 13 through 14, I think is abundantly clear. The Spirit will guide and lead you in opposition to sinful patterns. If in your life you sense no opposition to sinful patterns, only acquiescence, no sense of prompting and calling from the Spirit of God to change, you need to examine whether you've been converted, not whether in the past at some time you prayed a prayer. Okay? The evidence of, of conversion is that the Spirit of God is prompting life change and a desire for righteousness. I've made this observation in our church many times, heard this long ago. One writer said, sinners leap into sin and love sin. A saint lapses into sin and loathes it. They can't wait to get out of it. A sinner can envelop themselves in it and love it. A person who is genuinely born from above will find themselves at time caught in patterns of sin. 1 John 4, 8. If anyone says he's without sin, the love of the Father is not in him. He makes himself a liar. So we all are going to wrestle. The question is this, are you wrestling? Okay, because the evidence of conversion is that you will wrestle and fight against sin in and by the Spirit because he is the down payment and assurance of your full, complete adoption before the Father. If there's no fight, there's no conversion. Okay, and I don't care if you prayed a prayer in the past. I don't care if I prayed a prayer in the past. If I don't sense a desire to fight against sin, then I can't say that the Spirit of God has taken up residence in my heart and I need to do business with God at a different level. The second evidence of His presence in verse 15 of Romans 8 is this. 
It says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Once again, Galatians 4, 1 to 3, okay? But you received, okay, meaning in the past, at the point of regeneration and justification, what did you receive? You received the spirit of sonship. That's, here it is. You received adoption. And by that spirit who brings regeneration, you now are crying out what? Abba, Father. Same phrase comes up again. Now, here's what's fascinating. Between Galatians 4 and Romans 8, there's a change. Romans 8 says, by the Spirit, you cry out, Abba, Father. That is, the Spirit is prompting in the heart of true believers in circumstances of distress and trouble and temptation, a heart that says, Abba, Daddy. That's what the Spirit does. When trouble falls into the life of a believer, they're Natural inclination prompted by the Spirit is to turn to the Father and seek assistance and help. It's an evidence of conversion. Fascinating that in Galatians 4, it says that the Spirit is the one who cries out, Abba, Father. Not by us, but He internally is voicing what He wants us to voice. He is speaking into our hearts and minds, cry out in this situation, Abba, Father. Now, I had an experience, one of the most ex- embarrassing experiences of my life when I was a kid. I was riding my bike, and somehow my finger got under the chain and sprocket where you pedal. Okay, just reaching down there, no chain guard on the bike because you stripped them down because that was cool. Somehow, I got my finger up under that chain and sprocket on a bike that had the, the brakes that you just push down on the pedal. You couldn't pedal it backwards to get your finger out. My two brothers were there, fell off the bike. I'm laying on the ground, holding the bike up with one hand. My brothers are hysterically spread around the street laughing, thinking... You know what I was doing? I was crying out, Abba. You know why? Because I knew that when my dad heard my cry, and it was blood curdling, it was strong, it was embarrassing almost. When he heard that cry, you know what was going to happen? He was going to come running. This text, don't misinterpret this text. Don't read this text and say, we cry out, Abba, Father. So the picture is that we're cuddled up in Father's arms and he's holding us. Not the per- there are texts that talk about that. That is not this text. The word for crying out here in the original language is the word kradzo. Ladies that have had children can relate. Okay? In the Greek, it was a term that was used to describe the cry of a woman giving birth to her child. I don't think that's the snuggled up in the arms feeling. The last time I checked, watched my wife go through that. I did not go through it. I watched her go through it. It's not a pleasant experience the same word is used to describe the savior in the garden of gethsemane when he contemplated the sheer utter complete agony of calvary's cross you know what he did he cried out abba father here's what stuns me about that We're joint heirs with him. We have the same rights and privileges in our despair that he had. And when he was in despair, he cried out. In fact, Mark chapter 14 captures it this way. It says, he took Peter and James and John along with him. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. You ever had that experience in your life? where you're so deeply distressed and troubled that you're wondering if God even cares. 
Because the circumstances of life at times can be so utterly brutal and devastating. The son faced that. On the cross, what did he crodzo, cry out? You know what he did? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The cry of the son in the garden of Gethsemane is the cry of the child of God's, not during good times. But that cry that says, Abba, Father, Daddy, is the cry when it is prompted by the Spirit that assures the heart of the brokenhearted believer of the Father's love. That is the, the clear implication and indication of this passage of Scripture. We address God, number two, differently and confidently. Like the Son did in the garden, we as His sons and daughters also have the full privilege in circumstances that deeply distress and trouble us. We have the privilege of crying out in a different way than the rest of the world. Abba, Father. Folks, that is the essence of the relationship that God, by His grace, has given to us in your time of need. I think the emphasis here is this. Look to Him. Just like when I was laying on that street in my utter stupidity and pain, I cried out for the help of my Father. And that is exactly what the Spirit of God is going to do inside of your heart. When you come to faith in Christ and you hit hard circumstance, He's going to assure you, you are a child of God's. Cry out. And here's what I love. Galatians 4, He's crying out on our behalf. And in Romans 8, we're crying out with Him because He's prompting us to do that. That is beautiful. Go back to the book of Job in Job chapter 16, one of the obscure passages. Here's what Job says in the middle of his agony and pain. Oh, that I would have a mediator who would intercede with me between myself and God. That's what he longs for. Galatians chapter 4, at the right time, God sent forth his mediator, his son, Jesus Christ. And in your heart, in the heart of every truly born-again believer, you will address God differently and confidently as you come to pray. And the last thought this morning is this, from verses 16 and 17 of Romans 8. Or 16 and 17. Here's what it says. It says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. Now listen to this. That we are God's children. Okay, now what is that saying? Every born-again believer will experience an internal assurance by the Spirit, you are my child. And I'll tell you this, though, based on 1 John chapter 1, okay? If you live in sin, here's what you will find. That voice will be silenced in your life temporarily by sin, and it will scare the daylights out of you. It will scare the daylights out of you. Because you will feel vanquished from God by your sin. Isn't this what David said? If I regard iniquity in my heart, Father will not hear me. And it will cause you to make a beeline for the cross so fast. That sin and its ensnaring uh, capacity will scare you. And the Spirit of God is going to say, you're my son. I am not letting you go. And I, I have found in my own experience that that is one of the most blessed assurances that Father gives. That when sin is tempting and alluring, the Spirit of God says, not you. I will not let you at 21 years old, I experienced that in a way that totally, I felt like I was born again, again. Because sin was dealt a crushing blow in my life by the power of God. 
And I thank him for that. It's the assurance. If you can jump into sin and enjoy it, please, my friend, ask the question, do I know him? Have I experienced the intended consequence of the incarnation of Christmas? Does my heart cry out, Abba, Father? Do I cry out confidently and differently than the person who's in a plane that's going down into the river, Hudson River? Can you imagine the cries on that plane? Oh, God. Oh, no. That is not the cry of a believer. The cry of a believer is relational. It's not desperate. It is relational. And it is Abba, Father. And because of that relationship, we can count on his glorious and powerful response. The last thought is this, based on verses 16 and 17. We are assured of his love. Verse 17 says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs of God, and this is the stunning statement, and co-heirs of Christ. Contemplate that. If indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may with certainty also share in his glory. Now folks, that is the ground of worship. That's why when we sing, it should be characterized by a staggering degree of passion and amazement. Why? We're sons of God. You ever said that someone had said, how could that be? I know my heart. I am a son of God. And I made no contribution to it. It's only a blessing that I enjoy by his rich and abundant favor. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. We are called children of God. Puritan John Owen put it in this way. He said, the greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on your heavenly Father, the greatest unkindness that you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. Now think about that. The greatest unkindness the greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on your heavenly father is to not believe that he loves you. In fact, most parents can relate to this. I don't reflect on any of my daughters when I say this. But the strongest thing a child can say to their parent is this. Accuse them of not loving them. And kids, you want to hurt your parents? Tell them that you don't think they love you. Tell them, I don't think you love me. The greatest unkindness I can offer to God is to doubt his love. It doesn't mean we're not pained by life circumstances because you can go to the garden and the son of God, loved by his father, is deeply distressed and troubled, Mark 14. But he is convinced in that moment of his relationship with the Father. And that is the relationship that you have with God. And it's the result of Christmas. Do you believe in God's personal, deep love for you? Do you believe that he loves you? Last Sunday morning, I got to my office. I get in early on Sunday morning. And I, I just can't explain what happened. I just know there was, in a needed time, an overwhelming sense and assurance of God's love. It was not audible. It was just strong. 
just a sense of assurance. Right? When God does that for you, do you just, do you just I, I sat there and I just, I didn't, what, what do you do? I just wept. God, thank you. Thank you for your assurance. Thank you for your love. This is how we know that we are the sons of God. He's going to speak into your life. Do you believe in his personal, passionate love of the one who said, I will not leave you as orphans? No matter what you're going through, God loves you, and he's never too far away to help. I had a situation last week. One of my daughters called me, needed my help. And I could do nothing except know that she had a need. I was too far away to reach her. You know what? That hurts. That hurts. Here's a great promise from the Old Testament. The Lord's arm is not too short. That he cannot save. Mine is. I'll tell my girls, I love you. I'll do any, just call. And then they did, and guess what? I couldn't help. Called someone else to help. But I was, God is never in this circumstance where he's, oh, I'm just too far away. You're his son, you're his daughter, and he has unleashed his infinite capacity to care for you when you cry out, Abba, Father. Are you delighting in his unconditional love this morning? Don't question his love. Instead, do what 1 Peter 5 and verse 7 says. Cast all your cares upon Abba, Father. He cares for you. Here's the cool thing. On the days that you forget, the Spirit of God is crying out, but you get too much other noise going on in your life, too much busyness. That's me. He still loves you. When you aren't even recognizing, when you have wounded his love, when you've said, I don't think you love me, doesn't change the fact that he does. I'm a stupid dad. I said to my daughters, no matter what you do, I promise you, I will love you. That's not going to change. That's exactly what God has done for us. So no matter what you're facing, he loves you. And he proves that love through the advent of his son who comes to make your adoption possible. If you don't know that this morning, if you don't know his voice, you sense the spirit of God calling, trust him today. How deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Father, thank you for your love this morning. 